0: You're listening to the Crime Valley Podcast, a place where we search for the missing, remember the forgotten, and shine a light on the wrongfully convicted. contains themes which may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello everybody and welcome to the Crime Valley podcast. I am your host Amber and today I am covering a retrospect case out of Pennsylvania. This case is quite heartbreaking. There is no clear motive, no known person of interest. And the consequence of this is that two families have been left without answers for close to 30 years. If you enjoy this episode, then go ahead and share and subscribe. You can do this on your favourite podcast app or by going to followthepodcast.com forward slash Crime Valley. The year is 1993. The month is November. And the location is Warminster, Pennsylvania. In the news, the Maastricht Treaty, the Treaty on the European Union, comes into effect. The Serbian army fires on a school in Sarajevo, killing nine children. And in the US, the introduction of the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act sees mandated federal government background checks when purchasing firearms, as well as a five-day waiting period on firearm purchases. In the charts Please Forgive Me by Brian Adams, All That She Wants by Ace of Base, and Shoop by Salt and Pepper have all been recent big hits. And at the movies, Remains of the Day, Demolition Man, and Cool Runnings are all showing on the silver screen. Warminster, Pennsylvania was a relatively quiet place. Quiet places always have their secrets, though an underbelly of disreputableness and decay. No matter how polished and beautiful a town is on the surface, how respectable its citizens are, beneath the facade there are always those living a more desperate and chaotic existence. Back in the early 1990s, Warminster was described as less of a cohesive town and more of a mishmash of subdivisions. Situated in Bucks County, in 1993, Warminster Township had a population of just over 30,000. In 1957, the Federal Government had sold an area of Warminster, known as Warminster Heights, to a private buyer. What was once only meant to be temporary housing soon fell into varying states of disrepair. Over the decades... Warminster Heights certainly seemed to get its fair share of the blame for a large percentage of the crime in Warminster. Once called the worst suburban slum in Pennsylvania, the Heights residents themselves had differing viewpoints about their neighbourhood. Some felt that the bad reputation was overblown and unfair, while others refused to allow their children to play in the neighbourhood park out of fear for their safety In 1989, 89% of adults living in Warminster Heights earned under $25,000 per year, which was $14,000 less than the median household income in Bucks County at the time. In December 1993, an article by the Philadelphia Inquirer described Warminster Heights as being both physically and socially fenced off from the rest of the community. Surrounded by industrial parks, and having its water supplied by two contaminated wells, necessitating the need to filter the water which was supplied to the Heights, the area seemed a world away from Warminster Township. By the 1990s, the crime rate in the Heights had dropped dramatically from its heyday in the 1970s. An anti-drug program was created in 1989, called the Warminster Heights Challenges. The group's idea was to attack the drug and youth disenfranchisement problem at a grassroots level. It provided after-school and holiday activities for children aged four to 18. The issue remained though, that many of Warminster Heights felt looked down upon by individuals in other parts of the county. In March 1993, District Attorney Alan Rubenstein was doing some major housekeeping. An investigation was about to lead to the issuing of 40 warrants and the arrest of 15 suspected drug dealers in the area. The so-called street dealers had been selling a variety of drugs, including cocaine, methamphetamine, marijuana and LSD. Law enforcement was targeting drug dealers in the area, in an attempt to rid their city of the scourge of illicit drugs. Police had originally been tipped off by people from the Warminster Naval Air Development Centre, who came forward saying that they had been approached by street dealers trying to sell them narcotics. The Naval Investigative Service, the Warminster Police and the Bucks County District Attorney's Office were all involved in the 15-month investigation. 20-year-old Brian Benson was a gentleman through and through. He was the family peacemaker, always running interference between his brothers Andy and Eric. His family nicknamed him the Dove because of his inclination to always keep the peace. Brian seemed to be one of those people that it was impossible to dislike. Athletic, kind and easygoing. He loved going to the movies and skateboarding and was known for being friendly to everyone that he met. While he was still a teenager, Brian had babysat for a family friend. Their child was terminally ill, and Brian wanted to help however he could. His neighbours would always see him in his yellow truck, or helping his dad to maintain the family garden. Brian had been studying at Bucks County Community College, and had taken the semester off. He was set to return to college in January 1994. His good friend was 20-year-old Sean Campbell. Both Brian and Sean had gone to William Tennant High School and they had graduated in the class of 1991. Sean was described as a super kid who was studying engineering while working hard to bring in money. In November 1993, He was working full-time at Sylvan Pools, in addition to his job at West Coast Videos. Sean also had a keen interest in the criminal justice system and specifically in youth issues. Nobody had an unkind word to say about either young man and both Brian and Sean were consistently described as lovely guys. In the early 1990s, before DVDs were a thing, when videotapes reigned supreme, video stores were a popular place to go for some quick entertainment. In the US, West Coast Videos was a chain that headed 400 stores across the US, including 100 in Philadelphia. And by 1989, they were the biggest video franchise store in the US. By 1993, West Coast Videos was still a big deal, but we were now coming second to Blockbuster. Apart from a few newspaper articles discussing West Coast Video's success, the franchise didn't really make the news until July 1993, when it was reported that fraudulent activity had been linked to a West Coast video store in Carrick, Pennsylvania. Allegedly, a former store employee had taken newly signed-up customers' credit card social security, and address details to fraudulently make big-ticket purchases. Four and a half hours away in Warminster, another West Coast video store could be found situated at the Rosemore Shopping Centre on County Line Road. The store didn't just rent out videos. It also sold lottery tickets and housed an arcade that also sold snacks. Sean Campbell had been employed at the West Coast Video on County Line Road for six years, while Brian Benson had worked there for about four months. On Wednesday the 10th of November, Sean was working his scheduled shift. Brian wasn't meant to be working at the video store that night, but he showed up, believing that he was rostered on. Instead of sending him home, the store manager asked him to stay on and work with Sean. At 9pm that night, Brian's father, Gary Benson, stopped by the store to rent some movies. Everything appeared normal as he said goodbye to his son. Frank's Pizza would often have employees from West Coast Videos stopping by to get food during their shift. And the night of the 10th was no different. At around 9.15pm, Sean went to buy some french fries and a soft drink from the pizza shop which was only two doors down from the video store. By the time Sean came back with his snack, he and Brian only had 45 minutes left until they closed the shop for the night at 10pm. Early the next morning, store owner Jason Summers arrived at West Coast Videos and found the front door ajar. His mind immediately went to a potential robbery. Sean and Brian were reliable and trusted employees and there was no way that they would have left the store unlocked the night before. Looking around his store, he soon found himself at the back of the building, where the adults-only section was situated. Walking through the doorway, he was confronted with the horrific discovery of Brian Benson and Sean Campbell lying dead on the blood-soaked floor. When law enforcement arrived at the scene, they immediately ascertained that both Brian and Sean had been stabbed to death. Both of the victims had been stabbed multiple times and wounds to their arms showed that both young men had put up a huge fight against their attacker or attackers. Later, autopsies would show that both young men had been stabbed with long-bladed knives in the chest, neck, arms, trunk and throat with penetrating wounds to the heart and lungs. A cheap faux gold and zircon earring was found in close proximity to the bodies. When police checked Brian and Sean's ears, they saw that Sean did not wear an earring and that Brian's earrings were still intact. The cheap earring found at the crime scene was bloody and had flesh attached to its half-inch post. It looked as though, during the attack, one of the victims had ripped the earring from the killer's ear. No weapon had been left behind at the scene. Neither Brian nor Sean had been restrained during the attack. What had happened between the last customer leaving West Coast videos and the store manager arriving the next morning? Police initially believed that the murders were the result of a robbery gone wrong. $300 was missing from the cash register, but some cash had been left behind, both in the register and in Brian and Sean's untouched wallets. West Coast Videos had a policy that staff was to hand over money during a robbery so that they didn't put themselves in harm's way. If this had been a robbery gone wrong, then it was certainly overkill. Both men were at least six feet tall and physically fit. If there was only one perpetrator, then the only scenario that made sense was that one of the victims had been attacked before the other, had the killer hidden in the adult video section until closing, before ambushing either Brian or Sean. And when the other man heard his friend being threatened or attacked, he too entered the back area of the store, where he was then attacked. The cable to the internal security camera had been slashed and the store policy was to only have the camera activated for overnight surveillance. The big question was, why had the assailants felt it necessary to kill Brian and Sean? Did they all know one another? And if so, why would people who knew Brian and Sean attempt to rob the store in the first place, knowing that they would be recognised? An early newspaper report just after the attacks mentioned that the chips that had been bought from Frank's Pizza were on the floor of the store. I have never seen this fact printed in any other articles, so it is unclear if it is true. Given that detectives felt that Brian and Sean were killed after the closing time of 10pm, it seems odd that the hot food would still be uneaten close to an hour after its purchase. Buck's district attorney, Alan Rubenstein, told the county's detectives to assist Warminster Police. He called the murders evil and said this was an especially brutal, vicious and monstrous murder. The community of Bucks County was sad, scared and incensed all at once. Brian Benson and Sean Campbell were much-loved members of the community They had been innocently going about their business when their lives were brutally taken. Adding to the anger and the frustration was the fact that there was no clear motive for the attacks. It could have happened to anyone, and for what? A lousy $300. People also wondered how the attack on Brian and Sean had played out. Both men were gentle and level-headed types of people who would probably placate a robber rather than fight them. Brian Benson had not been rostered on that night. Did that mean that Sean Campbell was meant to work on his own, or was the manager who asked Brian to stay originally going to work that night? Did the attacker or attackers expect the manager to be closing that night? Blue ribbons were soon put up all around town in memory of the two young men. At William Tennant High School the flag was flown at half-mast and students openly grieved for the boys that many of them had known and liked. The mother of Brian Benson's former high school girlfriend was sad and angry about the murders. Even though her daughter and Brian had no longer been together, she said that he was a beautiful person and that he would have made the perfect son-in-law. In the days after the murders people would stop by the store as a kind of memoriam. Flowers were left at the shop, including two roses that held the boys' store name tags. The carpet had been ripped up in the adult video section and a divider had been put up to separate the area from the rest of the store. Understandably, parents of employees at the West Coast Video Store no longer wanted their children to work there, Employees that did continue to work at the store were escorted to their cars at night. Other shops in the Rosemore Shopping Centre also struggled with staffing issues. Nobody wanted to work late, and everybody felt like they were a potential target. Both Brian and Sean were buried on Monday the 15th of November in separate services. On Tuesday the 16th, Bucks County officials held a press conference and appealed to anyone who knew someone with an earlobe injury to come forward and report it. DA Rubenstein said that he would not say that the earring had definitely come from an assailant, but that it was possible. Rubenstein hinted that there was evidence that both men were still alive at 10 past 10 that night, 10 minutes after the store had closed. He would not elaborate on this. I have to wonder what that evidence was. It has never been publicly released, so all we can do is speculate. Did somebody, apart from the perpetrators, see Brian and Sean alive in the shop at 10 past 10 that night? Did either Brian or Sean make a phone call from the shop around this time? Or did the undisclosed evidence that the men were still alive after 10pm have something to do with the security camera? We know that the camera was only used outside of business hours. Is it possible that a timer activated the camera at 10pm when the store closed? And that Brian and Sean were filmed for a short period of time, getting ready to leave the store? I am unsure how much of the store the camera actually captured. Did the killers cut the wires on the camera, or did they force Brian or Sean to do it at knife point?' D.A. Rubenstein had said that there was not a tape in the camera that night. But I wonder if that was accurate. And if it was accurate, it seems logical that the tape may have been taken by the killers. On the 19th of November 1993, a 20-year-old woman named Roberta Daly was stabbed outside her workplace, L.A. Sound and Video, in Pleasantville, New Jersey. Pleasantville was only an hour and a half drive from Warminster, and people wondered if this was the work of the same killer. Police quickly assured the public that the two crimes were not linked. Roberta Daly had been robbed by a 25-year-old man back in July of 1993, while working at her job at LA Sound and Video. 23-year-old Jonathan Robinson had been arrested for the robbery, but soon posted bail. It was alleged that after his release, he had approached Roberta Daly to convince her to drop the charges against him. For this stunt, he was given a further charge of witness tampering. Two days before she was meant to testify against Robinson at trial, he came into the store while Roberta was working. The owner of the video shop would later find her in a drainage ditch behind the store. Roberta Daly had been stabbed a dozen times and the register robbed of $500. By the 20th of November, customers across 108 West Coast video stores had donated $20,000 to a reward and memorial fund for Brian Benson and Sean Campbell. In January 1994, Warminster was again in the news for all the wrong reasons. A former police chief named Elmer Clorges was accused by multiple women of sexual misconduct. Multiple town officials said that they had heard the stories for years, but most of them thought that the rumours were untrue. Although the stories of the women were compelling, DA Rubenstein announced that he would not be prosecuting Clorges, as the statute of limitations had passed. He felt that apart from the woman who was 13 years old at the time that Claude's allegedly sexually assaulted her, the other women's alleged encounters with Claude's had been consensual. Around the same time, it was reported that police felt that the trail had gone cold in the Benson and Campbell investigation. DA Rubenstein said that, A considerable amount of information has come in, but it led nowhere. The once eight-strong team of detectives working on the case was now down to two, although DA Rubenstein still referred to the case as a high priority. Sean's mother, Bonnie Younger, despaired that her son's killers would ever be apprehended. "'It's been two months and it's already forgotten,' she said. "'For all intents and purposes, these people have gotten away with it.'" The one bright spot on the horizon was the upcoming benefit concerts that were being held to raise reward money and awareness. In March of 1994, D.A. Rubinstein announced to the public that DNA had been taken from the zircon earring found at the crime scene. Now it was a waiting game until they could find a match. By November 1994, a year after Brian and Sean's murders, Their families were no closer to finding answers about their son's deaths. A $52,000 reward was available for information leading to the arrest of the assailant. Bucks County law enforcement was not talking about the case, although they said that it was still under investigation. At least publicly, they seemed to be going with the lone perpetrator theory although people who knew Brian and Sean wondered how accurate this theory was. Bonnie Younger's and Sean's stepfather Greg were still surrounded by reminders of their son. Sean's bedroom was left untouched, and Bonnie could not bring herself to interfere with the sanctity of her son's room, respecting the privacy that he had asked for in life. Whenever a car drove by at night playing loud music, For a moment, Bonnie's mind would tell her that it was Sean arriving home. Janice and Gary Benson were attending counselling sessions that offered support for the parents of murder victims. They would come to Brian's room as a reminder of who their son had been in life. Being surrounded by Brian's art and movie posters gave them a small semblance of comfort. Both families had wondered about all of the possible scenarios surrounding their children's murders. Was the killer someone that they knew, an individual that they saw most days, or had the killer left town a long time ago? Two years after the murders, Sean Campbell's parents were contacted by a man named John Hall. Hall would call them from prison, telling them that a man he was incarcerated with who was serving a life sentence, had confessed to the crime. After investigation, this was proven false in 1997. That same year, a rusted knife was found behind the shopping centre. After analysis, no evidence was found to link the knife to the murders. It is unclear if this knife could have been the murder weapon, degraded by time or if it was inconsistent with the wounds found on Brian and Sean's bodies. In 2013, the case was once again said to be being actively investigated. It was also announced that police and the Bucks County DA were pursuing actionable information. There was no details on what this actionable information might be. Over the years, both Brian and Sean's families had stopped checking in with the police. Years would go by without law enforcement reaching out to them. And when they did reach out, the answer was always the same. Checking in with law enforcement now seemed like a futile gesture. There was never going to be closure for either family, no matter the outcome of the investigation. All they could do was hold Brian and Sean in their hearts And move on with their lives the best that they could. In early 2021, the Rotary Club in Warminster received a donation of $61,545.86. The money was donated by the Benson and Campbell families and came from what was once the Benson-Campbell Reward Fund. Brian and Sean's families wanted to give back to the community that had once been so kind to them. Both families reiterated that they had not given up on finding justice for their boys, but they felt that the money should be put back into the community to improve the lives of others. Brian's family specifically wanted to help local food pantries, while Sean's family wanted to help disadvantaged youth in the area. At the heart of the family's wishes was that the donation would keep Brian and Sean's memory alive. On January 13th, the Warminster Rotary Club established the Sean Campbell and Brian Benson Memorial Fund. Every cheque that was distributed from the fund would include how the fund was established and the two families' wishes to keep their son's memories alive. There is quite a bit of speculation and innuendo online about Brian and Sean's murders. Perhaps this is to be expected when there is no conviction and so little public information available. There are stories of police cover-ups, an inept investigation and a drug deal revenge in which Brian Benson and Sean Campbell were in no way involved and were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. One account comes from an individual who says that on the night of the murders, she witnessed two very suspicious men in the dollar store located next door to West Coast Videos. The individual thought that the men were casing the Dollar General and felt as though they and the store clerk were in danger. They said that they went to law enforcement with this account and with descriptions of the men and they were completely brushed off. Other people question how thorough a job law enforcement did in their investigation into Brian and Sean's murders. This case is solvable. Perhaps with renewed publicity and genealogical testing, Brian and Sean's killer or killers can finally be brought to justice. Back in November 1993, one of the perpetrators would have had a noticeable earlobe injury, that they may have taped up to hide. Although the one-attacker theory has been considered, logic dictates that there was more than one perpetrator. Neither Brian nor Sean were bound. They were both tall, young and fit, and the murder weapon used was a knife. Although the robbery angle seems plausible, there is a lot about it that doesn't make sense including the fact that the attackers left money behind at the store. If you have any information regarding the November 1993 murders of Brian Benson and Sean Campbell, please contact the Warminster Police Department on 215 443 5000. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Stay safe, stay informed, and I will meet you next week in Crime Valley.